You're listening to the New Life Podcast. We're one church in multiple locations based out of Aberdeen, South Dakota. We hope this message helps the gospel come alive for you and gives you an opportunity to encounter Jesus in a whole new way. For more info on New Life, you can check out our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Let's get ready to listen to today's message. I'm going to challenge your scientific brains. Uh, They say that in leadership, the people that follow you end up looking like you. And if that's the case, then no one's going to know the answer to what I'm about to ask next because I'm not exactly a scientist. And I know that shocks you. But here's the question. How far is a light year? Does anyone know? Let's, let's take a step back. What, what is a light year? The distance that light travels in... One year, a child, the wisdom of a child. Look at that genius. Was that cowboy? All right, the distance that light travels in a year. And so uh, how fast is the speed of light? It moves at 186,000 miles per second. So here's why that's interesting. I actually listened to John MacArthur use this analogy. I thought it was super interesting. If a star burns out because stars are so infinitely far away, I mean, the numbers and the miles that are that are travel between us and some of the stars in the galaxy are so far away. He talked about, I heard him say this a few weeks ago, he talked about the fact that, and this kind of just blows your mind, this reality, that a star that he was aware of, and he, he heard a scientist talk about this, uh, had burned out 33 years ago, and it just now stopped giving us light. And so for the last 32 years, however many months, however many days, since I was just a little kid, there's this star in the sky that I've been looking at going, man, look at the majestic nature of this star. It's shining so bright, I can kind of look up in the sky, I can see this star. Just now into my 40s, when I was a little kid, now I'm seeing this star, and it's completely burned out, and I actually see it no longer, but it took all of that time because of the way that light travels at 186,000 miles per second. And his point was this, that you can see something that looks alive and vibrant and shining, and it can actually be deader than a doornail. And that, that's kind of how I want to open today with, because we've been going through these seven churches, and we land on this church that Jesus has harsh words for. In fact, maybe you grew up hearing this message, if you don't have something nice to say, do you know how it finishes? If you don't have something nice to say, then don't say what? Anything at all. We all need to wake up. This is kind of how new life works. You participate too. If you don't have something nice to say, then don't say anything at all. Jesus never got that message. When there was nothing nice to say, Jesus just told the truth, and that's what he does to this church. It was alive, apparently, but he knew because he's Jesus, this church was dead. It's like shining to the the community of Sardis around it, But in reality, on a spiritual level, they were dead, and so he calls them out. And the irony of that is the church was designed to be alive. The church, this church, any church that's gospel-centered is designed by God, by definition, to be alive in Christ. It's a place where God dwells. It's a place where God lives. It's not a building. It's not a sanctuary. All that blew up when the New Testament came. The curtain was torn. It's about having a relationship with Jesus and the Holy Spirit living inside of us and that changing us from the inside out. And so this was a scary time. This was the only church in its community. And when this church didn't go well, then the effect, the ripple effect of that was devastating because it was the only option. 
and Jesus has harsh words for this church. Greg preached last week, and just by a show of hands or maybe a clap or something, don't do it now because that's too awkward. How many of you guys thought for the first time ever for him preaching, that was pretty good? Right, he, he talked to you about youth and what's going on in culture around us, and he made this statement from Romans. He said, the church is not designed to be conformed. You guys remember? It's designed in its very essence to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. This church in this text isn't transformed, it's conformed to everything around it, and Jesus comes at the church and he calls it dead. They tolerated sin, they lived a compromised life, they were looking like the world around them, and Jesus has had enough. And so Revelation chapter three, this is what Jesus says to the church in Sardis. He says, and to the angel of the church, the words of him who have seen the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. He says, I know your works, he says, I have heard this reputation of you being alive, but we all know that you're dead. Here's a little background information. There's a lot that we don't know about this church, and so I'm just going to apply this church to our church, and we're going to have to fill in some dots here because it's a bit interpretive, but here's what we know about the community. Sardis was not poor. Sardis was rich. They were known for gold and silver. In fact, historians will tell you that they think where gold and silver was first minted was actually in this community thousands of years ago. And so they were affluent, they were somebody. And being somebody, sometimes you don't always be, be, become reliant on God, and that's what happened to them. And so there was this temple in the middle of the community. Uh, we've talked about these temples in the last several weeks. There was this temple that was dedicated to Artemis, and uh, it was a place where you would go for really just demonic pagan worship. They had dream interpretations. Uh, people would go there to receive healing. People would go there for all sorts of perverted acts. And Jesus writes to this church through John on an island in Patmos. And he says, you look alive, but make no mistake. I see you with my eyes of fire, and I know that you're dead. In fact, to this day, now this community, if you want to find it, is next to a very small community, uh, a village called Sart, and it's just a pile of ruin. They had all this wealth, they had all this advantage, and they're just dead. He says, I know your heart, I know what's going on. He says, I heard this really nasty rumor about you, that you're thriving and doing well, but the reality is that you're absolutely dead. And I see past it. Here's what he says in verse two. He says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Jesus has nothing nice to say about this church, and here, here's his big critique of it, that they're sleeping on the job, and he's telling him, he's telling his church, wake up, and so here, here's something really interesting about the church. He makes no reference to the fact that they have bad theology. He makes no reference to the fact that they're suffering like some of the other churches that he talks about in the last several weeks. He knows no reference to the fact that there's specific hardship and that they're being persecuted in any real way. He just simply says, I see you, you're sleeping on the job, everyone else thinks that you're doing real well, and I know and you know that that is not the ideal, and I'm gonna take care of business. And so I was looking at it through the lens of marriage, right? How many of you guys have found this to be true? Anybody married in church? How many of you found this to be true? Like your, your biggest fights, someone just put their wife's hand down. I, I don't know if it's going real well. Maybe this isn't your story, and maybe you hate conflict, so this isn't your story, but this is my story, and it's probably a bit of my pre, 
prima donna essence to my personality. You, if you like to be in front of people, how many of you guys know that those people are kind of weird and babies, right? And so guilty as charged. I would rather have a pretty nasty fight with my wife than be completely ignored by her. Is there anyone that would, right? Just don't ignore me. Anybody in church today? You're like, no, I'd actually rather be ignored so I can watch football, right? Jesus, Jesus uses this analogy of being the groom and we're the bride. And I think what's driving him to the point of where he is going to get after it in this text is he's saying, I would rather you, maybe, I'm not going to interpret what I think his mind is, but he, what he is saying very clearly is this, I need you to wake up. And looking it through the marriage lens, it's probably why I married an Italian woman. I don't know. In the psyche of my own mind, you can say some pretty mean stuff to me, but don't dismiss me as if I don't matter. That's exactly what this church is doing. They're not mad. They simply don't care. They don't care about Jesus' feelings. They don't care about being motivated to spread the gospel. They're just living it up in this gold and silver economy. And Jesus is probably thinking, I gave my life for you, and you can't even give me your affections. I mean, Jesus was just on earth a number of years ago. John's still alive. This isn't a long transition between health and devastation in the church. This church was vibrant. This church was life-giving. It was along the path of Asia Minor where all these churches were being planted. And in this just short period of time, everything goes bad. Jesus isn't having it. He said this. He says, I will come against you. Look at verse 3. Remember then. Remember then what you've received and what you've heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief in the night. I will come like a thief and you will not know what hour I will come against you. This is common language in the New Testament. He says this in Luke chapter 12. We hear it in 2 Peter 5. We hear it in Revelation 16. Maybe even if you're not a Christian, you've heard this, this information that Jesus is going to return and he's going to come like a thief in the night. Jesus is saying, I am going to take care of business. And what's historically interesting about that is that the people in Sardis would have kind of known on a physical level what he was talking about. On a historical level, they could relate to what he's saying because even though they were a military powerhouse, even though they were wealthy, even though they were positioned on a hill where it looked like they couldn't be defeated, there were two times in history in this small community where people came in and they got past the great wall that was defending them and they took them out militarily and they probably remembered those incidences through history because it devastated their people. There would have been people historically that sat in what was called a watchtower. And when you got really comfortable in a watchtower, you might fall asleep. And on two separate occasions, people weren't manning the fence. And, and the military that was against them came in and they wiped them out in 500 B.C. and around 250 B.C. And it was right around 250 to 300 years apart this happened. And so Jesus says, you know what that's like, but make no mistake when I come, your enemies that have defeated you in an earthly sense are nothing compared to what I can do. He says, wake up, quit sleeping on the job. And in verse four, he says this, yet you still have a few names in Sardis. People, and this is, I think, God's sense of humor here, people who have not soiled their garments, and if you think, what you, think you know what that means, you're right, that's what he's talking about. And they will walk with me in white, and I find that funny too, they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Of all the things to look up in the Greek, I chose this text, this little statement. This is what he's saying. This is how it translates. There's a few of you, and just as a point of reference, 
In any movement, even when it's corrupt, there's always a few people that God raises up, especially in the Old Testament. You see with Daniel and David and Isaiah and uh, you know, Moses. You always see this happen when things are rough. He says, there's a few of you that are gonna stand up in the midst of adversity, in the midst of this dead and sleeping comatose church, and you are gonna stand your ground. You're not gonna soil your garments. So in the Greek, the way that translates is uh, defile, to dye or color, to stain something or to pollute. It actually literally translates, you're not gonna smear your garments. Is everyone getting a mental picture? All right, I brought this visual. No, I'm just kidding. You guys need to wake up. He's saying, there's a few of you that I'm gonna call out. That's happening at New Life. And so I, I just wanna bring to light some things that are happening really quickly. There is always a remnant this church is built on the fringe remnant that are people that are getting saved. We don't really just have a bunch of church hoppers. We have people that are nominal, that haven't been really going to church for a while, and they're getting, uh, you know, hearing the gospel and getting saved. And I even saw it last week. I just want to bring a cool story to light. That there are people, even when they're being persecuted, who aren't soiling their garments. We have a high school girl that was here last week. She got told by her grandma when she got baptized that she joined a cult. And uh, I'm about 80% confident we're not a cult. I gotta keep checking out, but I'm pretty sure we're not a cult. I've looked at the definition. But she got told that because she was already baptized as a baby and she grew up Catholic, but she hadn't been going to church. She didn't know Jesus. She didn't even understand her Catholic faith. And as soon as she took that step, and we've had that happen before, even though we show people in scripture, well, you get saved and you get baptized, none of her family would come to this, this service. No one would recognize what she's doing. And so she said, I don't care. I've given my life to Christ. I'm going to church on my own. I'm coming with my friends. I'm going to youth group every week. And I am going to make a public profession of faith to Jesus because he's my savior. And even in the midst of darkness, there's always a few people that God raises up and we see transformation take place in their life. This is what verse five and six says, and then we're gonna close the text part and I'm gonna apply it. He says, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. He's saying, I see you. I know that you're set apart. I know that you're living differently. And I just want you to know that in a greater length of time between light years of that star and planet Earth, Billions upon trillions upon trillions of years from now, you're gonna be resting in heaven with me. There's gonna be a new heaven and a new earth. Your name's gonna be written in the book of life. It can't be taken away. I just want you to know in a dead and dying culture, I see you. Right, Caitlin, I know that you're taking that step towards baptism. It's because you've fallen in love with me as Savior. I know that there's this stuff going on around you where no one understands, but I want you to know, I see that you haven't soiled your garments. I want, to know, I want you to know that I am for you. I am your Savior. And so for the next period of time, I, I just want to break down this idea of death spiritually. And I thought an interesting way to do it would be to contrast it through a metaphor of what happens when you die physically. And because I've had the honor of being with people in their last breaths over the last 10 years, uh, there were just some ideas that came to my mind. It's kind of a unique way to interpret this scripture. It, it, and I just hope that it means something to you. 
and maybe you can relate to it if you're in the medical field and you've seen people pass, but I've watched this process take place, and here's what I've found to be true. Number one, write it down. Spiritually speaking, physically speaking, write it down. Death has a certain smell to it. Death has a certain smell to it. Here's what one person said on Google. They said the reason that death has a smell to it, and they identified it as death actually can sometimes smell like nail polish remover. I, I've never thought of it that way, but they said, they said it like this from a scientific standpoint. The shutting down of the dying person's system and the changes of the metabolism from the breath and skin and body fluids create a distinctive acetone order that is similar to the smell of nail polish remover. And so the reason that I bring that up is as a pastor, I can relate to this idea. That spiritually speaking, within church, and, and maybe you can relate to this in a past life or a movement that you are part of, spiritually speaking, death has a certain smell to it in church. I want to identify the odor because here's how it smells. This is what it looks like when churches die. And I'm going to get into a little bit of Barna stuff and tell you some of the facts about how many churches actually are dying in our culture right now. Here's what it smells like. No one cares what they're doing. No one cares what they're doing. And very few people in a dying church that smells can even identify why they're doing what they're doing. Are you tracking? Do you have that background? No one cares what they're doing in a church that smells of death. And very few people can even explain why they're doing it. And they tend to fight over things that really don't matter. Anybody? Right, like they get together, this is what death smells like. They get together in these annual meetings and you haven't seen, you know, Brother Larry for six or eight months and this is like across denominational lines. This isn't about one denomination. This, this happens in evangelical circles. It happens in Protestant circles. I don't think it happens in Catholic circles because they call all the shots in Catholic circles. But this is what happens when churches are dying and you can smell that death. They, they pick fights with the dumbest stuff that doesn't really matter, like the color of the carpet or the color of the walls or, you know, committees that should have this power and someone usurped this authority. I've told you guys these types of stories in the past. I've been a part of these types of things. And it's completely dysfunctional. No one cares what they're doing until it's a power play and no one can really identify why they're even doing what they're doing. It's just the way that they've always done it. Those churches, it's not if, it's just when that they die. And so a church should be life-giving. A church should see people baptized. It should see people getting saved. It should see transformation taking place from youth to death. There should be this continuum of spiritual care where people are growing in their relationship with Christ. I had this question that I wanted to lay out before you, and hopefully we can answer it correctly. Here's the question that we need to analyze uh, how we view the gospel through at this church. If new life, looking at a dead church, if new life ceased to exist tomorrow, we wake up, there, there's no new life in Aberdeen, there's no new life in Iquitos, Peru, there's, there's nothing, there's no presence on a reservation about 150 miles from here. If new life ceased to exist, would there be a gaping wound in our community, yes or no? Man, I, I hope you say yes. I hope you say yes, and if we can't say yes, then we need to change directions because we're not doing our job. But, but maybe you can think back on some past stuff that you've been a part of. If that movement ceased to exist, no more, it's gone, would anyone even care or would anyone even notice? Here's a different smell of death, and this one is 100% of the time. There's, even, there's either an indifference towards sin 
or sin is actually celebrated in that local church. Compromise kills churches. It kills it. And it should because those churches should not exist. And so there's even the, either one or two scenarios that take place in a dying church that smells of death. Number one, they see sin and they go, eh, not that big of a deal. Or even worse and more perverted, they see sin and instead of looking at the gospel and looking at scripture and looking at its authority and going, this has to change, instead of even being indifferent towards it, what they do is they start celebrating it and they take those things that are wrong and they start saying that they're right. Remember what I told you guys a few weeks ago about the way the slope slips? The first generation has this understanding of the Bible. The second generation rebels against it. And then the third generation comes along and they're not angry anymore. They just don't care at all. They're just indifferent. They have a whole new moral compass in which they see the world because they've never been churched. Mainline churches specifically, and all churches are struggling right now. Mainline churches are dying in droves. They're dying in droves and they have in a lot of ways, adopted the cultural viewpoints of the world. It's counterintuitive. Why would that even happen? How can you die when you agree with 80 to 90% of what culture is feeding us? The reason you die is because the same people that are biting on these truths that are from culture and not scripture, those same people say, I agree with you, and they applaud that local church for adapting their worldview, but they also then say, I'm God and I'm in charge, and so I don't really need to be a part of your system. These churches are not just kind of dying, they are tanking, and they smell of death. The last one is this, indifference towards people. A church smells in death when it just does these little social do-good things instead of actually responding to people's needs when they're hurting. I did this baptism Thursday. It was the most sacrificial thing I've done all year because it was a little chilly out, and I'm a baby. There's this guy, Tony, I've been walking with for years. He comes in and out of New Life, and he comes in and out of our recovery groups. And uh, he'd be the first one up here to tell you his story. He's an ex-Hooderite, wonderful, wonderful heart, really struggles with alcohol. And he asked me uh, a few weeks ago, he said, will you do my baptism at the lake? A few months ago, I got sober. I've been going to CR every week. And man, I just want to thank you because there were times where you came and saw me at Worthmore where I should have died and you never gave up on me. I think that's the heart of this church, that we're not going to just do some things publicly to look good, social causes. We're going to back it up with building relationships because relationships matter to Jesus. And so this smell of death is this indifference towards people that's evident in the way that ministry plays out. Here's, here's the next thing that I want us to walk in about the death of the local church. Death rates soar in the midst of a spiritual pandemic. Death rates soar in the midst of a spiritual pandemic. I thought this was clever. Maybe it's too soon with everything going on with COVID, but I thought, well, this is a sticking point we'll all remember together. There's this domino effect that's happening and I want to show you some of the stats just real quickly, and we're going to move along. But Greg told you last week, and then I told you the week before. Do you guys remember the stat? You know what Generation Z is? It's those people that have had enough of millennials that are coming up after them. One out of 25 of Generation Z holds to a biblical worldview. One out of 25 people that are my son's age and my daughter's age are saying yes to the Bible being inerrant, Jesus being the only way, you know, a, a biblical worldview of marriage. They are abandoning this in droves. There is a spiritual pandemic that's taking place in culture. And if we blink, we're going to miss it. 
and we're gonna miss the opportunity to speak into it. We're not a Christian culture, we're a post-Christian culture in the United States. And if we don't understand the missionaries that we've been called to be, we're gonna miss the entire message. People aren't angry at the church, they're indifferent towards the church because they've never been to church. They're not mad, look at me. They're not mad, they don't care. There is a different thing that has started. People are not saying, man, church really burned me. They're going, I never went to church. My parents were ticked at their parents for how they did church, but they never sent me. And these things of like tolerance that we talked about a few weeks ago, these things that I've just widely accepted as truth have never even been combated in my home. They've never been combated in my school system. They've never been combated in anything that I've ever done. I don't have your worldview. And so now we're missionaries to a post-Christian culture. Barna Research says this, that one out of five churches are likely to close permanently related to COVID in the United States. Those are the numbers. Those are real numbers. 58% of pastors in America are saying that the problem that they're seeing in a post-COVID world is not kind of a big deal. It's absolutely crushing, and they've lost 50% of their congregation. The church smells of death. Here's the next analogy I have for you. I was just kind of writing these things out this week. Sleep increases. This is a fact with people that die. Sleep increases when death is near. And so when the end is near, unless someone dies immediately, you'll see this kind of comatose state take place and maybe they'll be up for a little bit of time and you maybe had a parent, you've seen this happen or a grandparent. There's a little bit of time, they'll be awake and then they sleep and in time they're awake and they sleep and as death gets closer, the sleep, what happens? You guys know? The sleep just increases and increases and increases to the point of they're kind of in a coma-like state those last few days before they go, if they're Christian, to be with Jesus. And I think this text is a wake-up call to us as missionaries in our culture where the sleep rate is increasing and it's getting harder and harder to wake up people around us that we thought we walked with. Yesterday I had this birthday party for my 16-year-old son. Have you guys ever tried to wake up a 16-year-old? It's like a bear hibernating. I told the first service and it's like you, you could take an air horn. Are you tracking any parents? And you could just blow it off right in their ear and it's like it would just comfort them on their pillow. They wouldn't even be phased by it. And I know you were way different as a teenager because your teenager is so much worse than you, but man, that, I mean, just looking at that through, a, through the metaphor of this text, it, that's what it feels like. That sleep has increased and increased and Jesus is calling them out. He's saying, wake up. There's nothing new under the sun. 2,000 years ago, right after Christ ascended, a church has started. A generation later, it's dying. It's pagan. It's adapting everything around it. They don't even care. They're indifferent. They're like a bad husband watching a football game on the couch. They don't care. Jesus is calling out his church. He's saying, wake up. Most of you are dead. There's a few left who haven't soiled your garments. Sleep increases when death is near. The last thing is this, spiritual death is never a result of natural causes. Sometimes people just die peacefully in their sleep and on the death certificate it just says natural causes. This is never the case spiritually. There's always a catalyst. We were designed to be alive. We were designed to thrive. 
within the body of Christ. And when it doesn't go that way, when it's not alive, when it's not thriving, it's never natural. We were not designed to die spiritually. We were designed even physically to be alive forever until the result of the fall. There's always a catalyst. There's always a rebellion. There's always an indifference. There's always a choosing to walk away. And we are literally, I know this is doom or gloom, you guys. We are in the moment. If you're sitting in a seat right now, in this service, you represent about 10% of Aberdeen this morning. If you are a teenager who believes the word of God, out of 25 of you nationally, you're one. The church isn't just sleeping. The church is dead. But Jesus says there's this remnant that's going to rise up. I, I was telling the, the people earlier this morning, I called out the Wings players. You guys ever go to a Wings game? There's nothing that rejuvenates this Holy Spirit working in you than seeing a fist fight at a Wings game. I've even seen some swings take place with Wings players that go to New Life. And I felt like the Lord was really working through them in that process of, you know, just defending the gospel with their fists. But there, there's, this, there's this crowd, they sit over here, and I've, I've told you guys this story before, I called him out in the first service, and Nate from Hungary, he's like the fan favorite, he scored last night in the playoff game, or two nights ago, and he's got this bleached hair and cornrows, have you guys seen him? Nate's a Roman Catholic, I don't, I don't know exactly where Nate's at with Jesus, but he sits his butt in these services, week after week, after week, after week, after week, and he just stares at me, I don't ever have to say look at me, he's already looking at me. And I called him out in the first service. I said, God is raising up a new generation. There's this guy, Clayton. He's the captain of the team. They get home at four in the stinking morning, and every week Clayton brings a group to church. You guys seen him pray in that circle? That's Clayton's influence. God is raising up a group of young people that aren't going to soil their garments. The God of the universe who sent his son down, Jesus Christ, to die in your place and rise from death so that you can have life. He is working his plan. He's raising up a new generation that's going to be about passionately serving Jesus. This is a fun time, although it's sad. It is a fun time to be a Christian. And as a pastor, it's really fun because I can say whatever I want. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter because most people are going to disagree with me and a lot more people are going to completely not care what I say. But in the midst of all of that, this summer is all about being the salt and the light in a world around us that's broken. Here, here are the, just real quickly, I want to diagnose the problem and the solution. It'll take three minutes. The problem in Aberdeen, South Dakota, when it comes to sleeping in a comatose state or being dead, the problem is religion. Very few people would diagnose themselves as agnostic or atheist in Aberdeen, South Dakota. In fact, if you talk to 100 people, maybe you'd find one or two that say, there is no God. I saw a guy in Walmart yesterday on the back of his shirt. My son said, look at his shirt. It said, F God. I thought, that's not a popular message in Aberdeen, South Dakota. This guy's obviously, I probably shouldn't have actually used that language in church. This guy is obviously hurting, and he's probably easier to reach than someone who's religiously apathetic towards the gospel. The problem in Aberdeen, South Dakota is religion. I was getting my hair cut yesterday. Let me be very clear, and I know this will offend some, but we're just going to keep going with the offense thing this Sunday. I was getting my hair cut by a girl in her, her mid-20s. She was really sweet. I, I only go to the fanciest saloons. It was great clips, and I tip really well, so they love me. I've just got a lot of money. And uh, 
I, I was getting my hair cut and I always ask questions and I said, hey, um, how much longer are you going to work here? I heard you're not going to work here much longer. And she said, yeah, I'm not going to be able to work much longer. I'm about to get married. And I said, oh, tell me more about that. And I'm always like secretly trying to get people to new life. And uh, she didn't know I was a pastor, so I was just like not telling her yet. And so I played inquisitive, like I don't know anything, which is almost true. And so I was, I was talking to her. I, I said to her, you know, what's that look like? And she said, well, you know, we're going through a bunch of religious stuff right now because I grew up Lutheran, uh, nothing wrong with that. <laughs> and, uh, and she says, my husband's Catholic. And I said, ooh, tell me more. That's exciting. What are you going to do about that? That sounds, uh, that sounds like it could be a problem. I don't know if you studied the Reformation, but, you know, uh, there's some problems with that. And she goes, well, we're going to do both. You guys heard this story before at New Life? Like people go to the Catholic Church and then they come here and they, out of guilt or whatever. And uh, um, she said, well, we're going to do both. And I said, well, tell me more. She said, well, actually, we're being married. We're being married by a Lutheran pastor, but we're going through our premarital stuff with a priest and then that really got my interest. And I thought, this, is, this sounds like a new life story before someone, you know. And so she's telling me all these things. She said, there's so much stuff that I didn't even know. Uh, one of them is my husband's church believes that when you die, you go to this place called purgatory and you can't go to heaven yet. And people around you have to pray you out. And at that point, like, I couldn't just hold my tongue. And, you know, in the Midwest, we're passive aggressive, not aggressive. And I just played dumb. I didn't tell her I was a pastor. And I go, oh my gosh, where is that in the Bible? And, and she's like, I don't know, I'm Lutheran. You know, and so she's, and then she's, she's like, I don't know how we're going to pull all this off. But, it, you know, she just said the classic religious thing. You know, as long as you're just a good person. And she's really sweet, by the way. <laughs> Maybe she'll hear this message. And, and she's like, it's, you know, it's just all about going to church and being a part of something. And I'm just, I'm thinking, please come hear the gospel at New Life, come hear the gospel at New Life. But she's unpacking all these things. She said, for us, it's so much different. The big struggle for us is gonna be, you know, my sophomore year, I was confirmed so that I could be a member of my Lutheran church, and I really want my kids to go through that, but then they have to go through catechism with Catholic stuff. We don't know how it's all gonna work. We don't even have kids yet. And I'm just thinking in my mind, just, just as a starting point, there's nothing wrong with confirmation. It's got a good premise to it. There's nothing wrong with teaching people about the Bible. That's great. Here's the problem with all of it in Aberdeen. I said this is going to take two minutes. It's taken longer. The problem is it's a religious system, if it's not centered on the gospel, to work you through, you know, a link in the chain process so that you can be over here and be okay. That sophomore year, magically, all of a sudden, now you belong and you don't have to really do anything anymore. I'm not saying all people are confirmed. I grew up Presbyterian. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying all people who confirm don't get the gospel. I know that's not true. What I am saying is there is a spirit of religion in Aberdeen that says, check this, check this, check this, check this, and check this, so that you can be okay with God and you can be a good religious person. And I'm telling you right now, that system is blowing up. Mainly because the vast majority of people my age and younger do not care. There's a massive opportunity for the gospel to explode in Aberdeen because as people are indifferent towards religion, we can give them something else. This is the closer. We can give them relationship with Christ. It's not that the process is bad, but when you lean on the process instead of the Savior, you're cooked. And this next generation is coming up one out of 25 with a biblical worldview that can't 
are not a biblical worldview that can't defend what they even believe. And here we are, new life, a city on a hill. We have a jacked up parking lot and a blue roof that looks like an old Walmart. And downtown, it's even worse. And we have the gospel and the church is just continually reaching people Sunday after Sunday after Sunday because people aren't stupid. They want something real, period. And here we sit. We are in a massive opportunity for the gospel to be unleashed in Aberdeen. And as your leader, I'm asking you to take this seriously. The church is sleeping. People are exiting in mass quantity. And in the midst of all of that, we have an opportunity. This is a massive deal. There is no bigger deal than the people of God coming together, worshiping Jesus and being sent out on mission. I have never in my life been half as passionate about making Christ known as I am right in this moment because I know that we're sitting on a moment. This is not a time to soil our garments. This is a time to stand firm in what Jesus says and follow him with our whole heart. This is not a time to follow a subset of rules and abandon the relationship with the Savior. If you don't know Christ at all, man, I'm calling you out. You can't be lukewarm. You can't have it both ways. It's all of Jesus or nothing. This is the world that we live in. If you are a father in church today, I want to just tell you, you're the spiritual leader of your home. No one can do it but you. You are the one that's going to be the pastor of your own home. If you're a mother in church today, God's given you this precious gift of children to shepherd their hearts and to love them and to teach them the ways of the Lord in a world where they are abandoning the faith when we show them real, authentic, serving Jesus, they will follow. Let's go to the Lord. Jesus, we thank you for your word. Save us from ourselves, Jesus. Raise up this next generation to passionately serve you. Wake up our hearts. For those of us that are sitting in this space or listening online and we're looking at this service through the lens of just a thing that we check off the religious box, open our hearts to the gospel. Thank you for dying in our place and rising from death. Help us to make worshiping you and living together as a family the absolute top priority of our life. For those that don't know you at all, Jesus, rescue their hearts. I pray that they would call on you for salvation this morning. Use this movement to create a revival in our community. We pray this in your name. Wake us up. Amen.